the Storax podcast. Today we've got Dr. Helena Anderson from Oslo University Hospital and she's going to talk to us about her article published in Rheumatology this year. Dr. Anderson, just to begin with, can you just explain what your paper's about and also just a definition of antisynthetase syndrome and why as respiratory physicians it might be an important diagnosis to consider? Thank you. I just want to say that uh, the antisynthetase syndrome is a very, very rare syndrome. And uh, there, unfortunately, there are no classification or diagnostic criteria for the syndrome. It's also called ASS. I think the most used definition of ASS is that you find one of the eight known antisynthetase antibodies, uh, mm-hmm. and the patient has got myositis mostly. But very many of them also have got ILD, according to the criteria from American Thoracic Society. So uh, the syndrome was first discovered in a patient from the U.S., and they were discovering this new antibody, and the patient's name was uh, John, so the antibody was given uh, JO1 as a name. This is the most common of the antisynthetase syndrome uh, antibodies. And so why it's important for you, because now we have done this study with patients who have got very severe ILD and very acute respiratory failure as well. And we, since it is a kind of antibody or autoimmunity-related disease, we tried to uh, see if they could be better treated with rituximab as a mm-hmm. B-cell depleting agent. So that's why it's very important for the respiratory doctors to see as well, physicians to see, if, uh, because there are many people who have got the diagnosis of lung fibrosis, but maybe it could be an antisynthetase syndrome because they don't have to have some other clinical symptoms. They could just have ILD and this uh, antibody. And just talking a bit more about your paper specifically now, how does your study add to what literature there is already about rituximab and interstitial lung disease? Yes, you could say that in the myositis field, there are two small uh, retrospective studies, but these studies were uh, just follow-up patients for one year or maybe 18 months, I think. And there are also in systemic sclerosis, which is a very uh, severe disease in the rheumatology field, they have also done a retrospective study with 60 patients, and it looks like that the rituximab also is in benefit of these patients with FVC and DLCO getting better after receiving a rituximab. I made a quick search and I saw that there was now in June, it was published for just idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. They had 11 patients treated with rituximab, but at the same time they also got a plasma exchange. Right. And these patients were doing better as well. Okay. Mm. That's an interesting study to look out for. And again, going into your paper specifically, because as you say, there's not a huge amount of literature or evidence about using rituximab. How did you decide on the dose and the regime of rituximab you used in your paper? Yeah, that's a very good question (laughs) because we actually don't know. Because you have to remember this is a retrospective study and almost everyone of our 24 patients started the rituximab in our hospital but the patients come from all of Norway and Mm -hmm. I think there were two patients that were receiving in local hospital because they were in such a bad condition that they couldn't come here. But in the rheumatology field, we use rituximab in arthritis and in SLE and the standard regimen is always 1,000 milligram IV in day 0 and day 14. Mm-hmm. So that's why we did as we do in, in the rheumatology field. I'm not saying that that is the right thing to do. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. 
but that's the kind of thing we do in the rheumatology field uh, if we treat arthritis. Yeah, okay. And from looking back on your data, what do you think about that dose? Do you think there's a scope for using a lower uh, dose? Uh, no, I think no. I think as an induction therapy, uh, I think that dose is, is good. But but you could discuss if you as a maintenance therapy. I'm not sure. Many of us just give one infusion as the next cycle, or mm. others take two again infusions. But we don't know. I, I, I must say we don't know. And it seems from the experience that you've published, there was a a variety of number of doses that patients received. Just from that experience, what did you make of maintenance therapy and what the optimum might be? Because as you see in the the paper, there are some of the patients that receive, I think, up to 11 cycles of rituximab. And these patients are patients that have been transferred to their local hospitals and they have given the treatment as they think were the best thing to do. So I think that if you have uh, respond to as an induction therapy to rituximab, I think you can repeat it every six months nice. with one infusion, not two uh, mm-hmm. afterwards. And that, I think, is also what we are thinking to do in, in other uh, rheumatology diseases as well, yeah. uh, also in vasculitis, for example. And it was also interesting looking at the results that you published that there definitely seems to be a trend to a greater response in people with acute onsets in special lung disease. What did you make of that? Do you think that's kind of a separate group of patients? We think the theory is that when you have this acute exacerbation, you also have a very high titer of, uh, for example, anti-J1 or another anti-synthetase antibody. And that's why, as you can see in the paper, it looks like that the patients have a higher titer of anti-J1 before they got the, the treatment. And that's why we also think that if you have a very high disease activity and you then give rituximab at that point, I mean, if we think that the antibody contributes to the activity of a disease, yeah. then it's good to give this rituximab when you have the highest activity. We, we actually try to look for the antibody types before and after the treatment just mm-hmm. to see if a kind of response criteria. Obviously, you're focusing on looking at uh, how rituximab might improve lung function, but there's lots of other um, immunosuppressive treatments used on the patients yeah, in that right. study, and you fully explain that it's yeah. retrospective study. But how can you look to tease out whether it's rituximab that's making the difference? I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, I can't do that. I think that's the major concern of the study because yeah. it's retrospective. But most of the patients, I think, they started with cyclophosphamide. Many of them had cyclophosphamide as well. And they had cyclophosphamide maybe one to two months after rituximab. Some of them actually exact on the same time. But mm-hmm. the other ones, if you think about this uh, acetylprene, methotrexate, or mycophenolate, uh, that we these treatment the effect is building up in the body so it, it maybe mm-hmm. it's, it takes about two or three months afterwards that you can see the effect of these uh, treatments in these patients with acute exacerbation or with uh, acute onset uh, I mean they got better uh, in three or four weeks after the infusion uh, I mean clinically so uh, that's why we do have the clinical experience that the rituximab uh, are good in these patients mm. Okay and probably following on from that if you were going to try and answer that question how do you think it should be done what study should be done next? This is a, such a rare disease so we have yeah. to do it in a multi-center uh, randomized controlled trial Yeah. 
Uh-huh. And we are applying for grants uh, right now, actually. Some help from uh, our uh, European and American colleagues. So there we will have uh, rituximab and cyclophosphamide and also just steroids. Hopefully we will have some grants and we will do this study now in the next coming years. Mm. Excellent. I just want to point out for you as a respiratory physician that we asked our colleagues in the respiratory department to check for uh, antisynthetase antibodies in their patients with uh, idiopathic lung fibrosis and who were on the transplantation waiting list. Right. And where they had, I think there were 60 patients with IPF uh, Mm -hmm. and Five or six of them had these antisynthetase antibodies. Right, okay. So it's probably underdiagnosed. I think so, yes. So if you just could have a kind of ILD and this antibody and no other clinical symptoms of the antisynthetase syndrome, then you are, you are thinking just uh, IPF maybe, yeah. That's very interesting. Thanks for mm. taking the time yeah. to talk to us, Dr. Anderson. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>